you would look with me in Ephesians or Philippians chapter 1. Apostle Paul writes in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning because we have experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so abundantly. A grace that has saved us. A grace that has reoriented us to you by faith, by your spirit. And Father, I pray that we could experience the grace of this text this morning anew. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. D.A. Carson begins his book, Basics for the Believer, with a paragraph that I believe characterizes largely the, the Western church. He says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies or cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those from different races. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved. But not so much that I find my ambitions redirected. Or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about three dollars worth of gospel please. When we are initially saved. We know just enough to recognize that we're a sinner. Jesus Christ has paid our sin debt in full by the cross. Was raised from the grave that we might have the forgiveness of sins. We know that. But what we do not yet know at that point of conversion is how the gospel is to inform every aspect of our lives. The way we think, what we think about, the way we speak, the way we interact with others, the way we love our enemies, the way we spend our time, our resources. We do not yet know how the gospel is to impact the way we interact with brothers and sisters in the local church. And that's why it's so important that we immerse ourselves in that gospel. It's what the Apostle Paul calls walking in step with the truth of the gospel. In time, if we don't learn and we don't grow in our understanding of how the gospel is to impact every aspect of our lives, we will begin to push that gospel to the periphery of our lives. $3 worth of gospel, if you will. 
And that appears to be, in so many words, Paul's concern with the church at Philippi. It appears, for instance, that their love for each other has grown cold. We'll see that in chapter 1 as he begins to pray that their love would abound for one another. There were, and I will use the words from Philippians itself, there were rivalries, conceit, grumbling, questioning, likely the questioning of leadership, conspiracy theories, and division. There was this tendency to to focus on work salvation as we read this morning from Philippians 3. And yet, the Philippian church was a gospel fellowship. A real gospel fellowship. It's a church like ours. It's a church like any other church we might see today in America. Now for background, after the Jerusalem Council, which is Acts 15, the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, he wants to retrace his steps from his first journey. We read about that in Acts 13 and 14. In the book of Galatians, we read about how he helped plant that church there. And so he wants to retrace his steps on his second missionary journey. We read about that in Acts 16. It's a, it's a very arresting and interesting chapter uh, concerning Paul's missionary career. It says twice, though, that the Spirit forbade him from going back to where he had gone on his first trip. We don't know how the Spirit prevented him from doing that. Doesn't tell us. It's not important. But he found himself in Troas, which is the gateway to Europe. We're glad he did. We wouldn't have that gospel today had Paul not come to Europe. And at Troas, he received a vision. He had a vision. And it was a, a man from Macedonia, which was in Europe, northern Europe, northern Europe. And this man pled with Paul to come help him. So Paul and his team did just that. And they made their way to Philippi, one of the central town cities in Macedonia, which is in northeast Greece today. It was around 51 A.D., 50-51 A.D., and that trip changed history. The gospel came to Europe in 51 A.D. And, of course, most of us are from European descent. We are forever grateful for it. Now, when he got to Philippi, he'd been there a few days and he found a group of women. They were Gentile women and they were God-fearers. And they were worshiping by the riverside. Acts 16, verse 13. And there was one woman, and I love this, Acts 16, 14. says, the Lord opened her heart to hear what Paul was saying. The word came to bear on this woman. And by God's sovereign grace, he raised her from the dead. Her name was Lydia. She was the first convert in Philippi. She was a businesswoman and had a, evidently a large home. And so she invited Paul there. And it's very likely that that's where the church in Philippi was planted in Lydia's home. But as we saw in our series on spiritual warfare, when the gospel is advancing, there will be spiritual warfare. 
And immediately after Lydia's conversion, Paul was encountered by a girl with the spirit of divination. divination. She was demon-possessed. And so Paul cast the spirit out of this girl. And this caused chaos in Philippi. Why? Because the owner of this girl, that was his primary source of income, this girl. I don't know how he earned income off of her, but... Paul had ruined his primary source of income, and it created chaos in the city. So Paul and Silas were arrested. But before they were arrested, they were beaten to a pulp. But then they were thrown into this jail in Philippi. And what did they do? Rather than complaining, like I would have done, they worshipped. They sang, and they worshipped. In time, this earthquake occurred... Supernaturally, I'm sure. And the the prison cell was shaken. The doors were opened. And the jailer there who was awakened from the earthquake just knew he had lost his prisoners. He was about to kill himself. And then he saw Paul and Silas were still in their prison. They're still in their cell. He had heard them worship. He had seen them respond in submission to their authority. And it prepared him for the gospel. He said, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You and you will be saved. You and your household. And the gospel continued to advance in Europe and in Philippi. Well, it was learned that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And so they were asked to leave. And they did. But not before going back to revisit Lydia. The Apostle Paul never forgot them. In fact, he would make a couple more trips back to Philippi. But he never forgot them and they never forgot him. In fact, that makes sense of what many commentators say, that the church at Philippi was the Apostle Paul's favorite church. In fact, this letter springs from the fact that some contribution, some money was brought to Paul while he was sitting in a Roman prison somewhere around 61 A.D. The man who brought that money to him was one of the church members at Philippi. His name was Epaphroditus. And so they brought this money. Evidently, Paul was in some kind of financial need. And they brought this contribution to the Apostle Paul. But it wasn't the only reason that Epaphroditus visited Paul in that prison. The church was struggling. And they thought by sending Epaphroditus to Paul, Paul could then afford to send Timothy back to them to help them with their issues. We see that in our chapter 2 of Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 23. The Apostle Paul, though, could not afford at that point to send Timothy for whatever reason. His situation did not lend itself. He could not send Timothy back to them. He needed Timothy. So what does Paul do? He decides to address their issues with his pen. And for 2,000 years, we've been forever grateful. Because what he penned is the letter to the Philippians. The gospel is alive and well in this church at Philippi. However, as with any church and with any individual Christian, there's the ever-present need to grow in our understanding of how the gospel informs every aspect of individual life and corporate life. 
And the fruit of that is joy. How do you know the gospel is informing a person or a church? That person or church is characterized by joy and fellowship. In fact, the word gospel is used nine times in this letter. It's a short letter. It's used nine times. Just a trivia point here. It's used more times per line than any other book in the New Testament. The word gospel. The word joy, or related terms like rejoice, is used 20 times in this letter. And the word fellowship, koinonia, which is sometimes translated partnership in, our, in this book, is used six times. Now, let me offer you a very helpful outline of this book. I get this from Irving Jensen. It's not new to me, or it's not my outline, but I think it's very helpful. In chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 26, we see, as we sang this morning, Christ is our life. The Apostle Paul is addressing their issues not by beating them over the head, but by giving them Christ. He recognizes that he can give them a vision and, and, and a, a new picture of God's glory in Christ that it will, it will address those issues that they are dealing with. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 26, he speaks to the reality that Christ is our life. In chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, through chapter 2, verse 30, he reveals that Christ is our pattern for living. In chapter 3... All the way to chapter 4, verse 1, Christ is our goal. And in chapter 4, verse 2, all the way to the end of the book, verse 23, Christ is our sufficiency. This book is about Jesus Christ. It's about his person, his work, his worth, his gospel, and all the implications of that gospel for his church. That's why it's such a timely word for us. In fact, the first thing we see in this text concerning Jesus Christ is that the gospel produces servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice with me in verse 1. Paul begins his letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I think the English translation tames that word because of our atrocious past where we had the legalization of slavery, which is an abomination in our history. But a better translation of this is slaves, slaves of Christ Jesus. The word is doulos. So Paul literally says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, in in several of his letters, Paul will begin his letter by including the name of one of his colleagues as a kind of co-author of that letter. Um, But in those letters, he identifies himself with one title and he identifies his colleague, his co-laborer, with another title. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. This letter is... Very unique. It's the only place he does this. Here he links himself and Timothy, the co-writer, with one title, one shared title. And what is that title? 
slave. Now, why here? Well, we can only speculate, but it's likely due to the issues in this church. One of the real issues in this church was division and grumbling. And when you have division and when you have grumbling and when you have negativity, that reflects the fact that a particular church or person is enslaved to someone or something that is not Jesus. It's the evidence. It's the fruit. A grumbling heart evidences that we are enslaved to something that's not Jesus Christ. And they need to see in HD with Paul and Timothy that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. Now, it's a different kind of enslavement. We don't come kicking and screaming against our will. This is a very ironic enslavement. It's a liberating enslavement. It's a glad and hopeful and joyful reorientation to the one for whom we were made in the first place. And that kind of enslavement will inform how we respond to every issue, every disagreement within the body and, by extension, in your marriage and in your families. And so Paul begins Philippians by inviting the people of God That is the people of Philippi, the people of Fisherville, to embrace this understanding of the Christian life. Now think about this. Where's the Apostle Paul writing from? Roman Country Club? No. He's writing from a prison. And he's awaiting the outcome of his appeal to Caesar. He does not know what this outcome will be. He recognizes the potential is that he could die. But he's showing them how to be a slave of Christ and what this looks like and what it looks like when your heart is set free to accept any outcome. In fact, notice in verse 19 of our chapter, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this is not name it, claim it. Because Paul recognizes there's two ways to be delivered. He may be delivered from the jail, or he may be delivered from this life. But he's going to be delivered. And he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed... Whatever the outcome. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That is the evidence of one who is a slave to Christ. Here's my question. It's a question I ask myself, by the way. I preach this sermon to me before I can preach it to you. Can this be said of you? Can this be said of me? That you... Or a slave of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, the apostle Paul, he's an apostle. That calls for a different kind of a commitment than what God calls me to. 
Well, besides the fact that that reasoning is wrong and faulty. What about Timothy? Timothy's not an apostle. He's the friend of an apostle. But he's no different than you or I. But verse 20 here, I think, helps us answer that question. Are you a slave of Jesus Christ? So let's fill in the blank here. It is my eager expectation and hope. All of us have that, don't we? We all have expectations. We all have hopes. Whatever it may be. You may not be in a prison cell. But you may be in a situation where you really want God to move. And he says that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now is also, always, Christ will be honored in my body. No matter what happens. Can you say that? Can you say that? Paul is awaiting the outcome of his legal case. Where he might be delivered from prison or he might be beheaded. But he says, the main thing is I don't want to be ashamed. I want to honor Christ in my body. And so maybe you're in a set of circumstances right now. You don't like those circumstances. In a fallen world, that's not surprising. We're in a broken world. We're in circumstances and situations all the time that we don't like. But are you willing to say, whatever God does in these circumstances, I don't want to be ashamed. I want Christ to be honored in my body. We need to be able to say that individually. We need to be able to say that as husbands and wives. We need to be able to say that as children. And we certainly need to be able to say that as Fisherville Baptist Church. And so we see something here of what it means to be a slave of Christ. The second thing we see here is what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, there are four truths from that little phrase that characterizes every healthy Christian without exception. The first three characterizes every Christian. The fourth one, some Christians may get a D on. The first we see here, Christians are saints. Are literally holy ones. Now, in certain traditions, there's only a unique group that are considered saints because of miracles they've performed and great works. Paul says every Christian is a saint. Now, that's important to understand because, first of all, it gives me a heart of gratitude for what God has done for me. Because I was once unholy, positionally and practically. And now... I'm a saint. But the me I see is also the me I'll be. I'm a saint. You're a saint. Now, it would feel more normal to most people if Paul had written St. Paul to the Christians in Philippi. That's not what he does. He says slave Paul to the saints in Philippi. 
But this is entirely consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Where the customary word for Christian, by the way, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. But the word saint is used over 60 times. Now, that word comes from the word to to make holy, to, to sanctify. And the root, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, literally means to cut. To cut. God's act of making us holy cuts us as believers away from our ordinary association. In fact, unbelievers, the unholy, are cut away from the covenant, the new covenant, and the blessings of the covenant. And so to be holy, to be a saint, is to be cut away from our ordinary association into a new sphere where everything is holy. And what is that sphere? That brings us to the second truth about every Christian. We are in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if it just said to the saints, that may communicate that the way I become a saint is by a lot of activity. By a lot of works where God just gets so impressed with me, he has to let me into his heaven. But in Christ Jesus qualifies this. This is Paul's favorite way to describe a Christian. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm a Christian. It's biblical. But again, it's only three times in the New Testament. But over a hundred times, the Apostle Paul speaks about believers being in Christ Jesus. So the next time you're on a plane, instead of asking the guy sitting next to you, are you a Christian? Just say, are you in Christ? It's even more Pauline. So what does this mean to be in Christ? Well, to be in Christ means that our character in the Adam story. Now, when I say the Adam story, what I mean is that Adam, the first man, and there was a man named Adam. He was was created in the Garden of Eden, and he was our representative. The first man represented all of humanity. That's why Paul would say in Romans 5 verse 12 that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death to all men for all have sinned in Adam. He represented us in the Garden of Eden. It's called federal headship. And now my character in the Adam story, think of that story as a grand narrative. All right? My character in that story has been killed off. I'm no longer in that story. I have been killed off and I have been written into a different script with a completely different character in Jesus Christ. He is now my federal head. I have a new story. It's the story of redemption. Another way to think about this, God has dealt with us by dealing with Jesus Christ. God has dealt with us, that is, believers, by dealing with Jesus Christ. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is the place where God took hold of human nature to save it. By dealing with sin decisively at the cross, where God's judgments were poured out 
on Christ for those who would believe. And we know his judgments were satisfied in the Son because he raised him from the grave. That happened in time and space. It's a historical event. And he poured out his spirit without reserve. And now since salvation is all accomplished in Jesus Christ, our salvation from the event of being saved to the process of being sanctified to one day being glorified is a matter of being joined and united to Christ. We are in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so we are saints. We are in Christ. But thirdly, notice... They are at Philippi. Well, how's that apply to us? What's implied here? The Christian lives in two different spheres and orders of reality. Philippians 3.20 will tell us that our citizenship is in heaven. But we have a citizenship here as well. For the Philippians, it was in the city, the broken and sin-stained and idolatrous city of Philippi, In Macedonia. For you, it's in the idolatrous and broken and sin-stained city of Louisville. In the state of Kentucky. And while we are here, we should not be surprised by the brokenness. And yet, even in the midst of that, because we are in Christ, we are saints. We are to be, as Philippians 2.15 says, lights. In this world. Fourth. They are with. The overseers and deacons. Isn't it amazing. Just half a verse can teach us that much. The Bible's so rich. I can't get enough of it. I hope you're that way. This is the only letter. That Paul opens. By addressing. The church offices. There are two offices in the church. We have seen this extensively as we made our transition to elders. The office of overseer and the office of deacon. The overseer is the same office as elder and pastor. We won't take the time, but we've done it numerous times to support that. Acts 20 verse 17 and verse 28. And then 1 Peter 5 Verses 1 and 2. There are two sanctioned offices in the local church. The overseer slash elder pastor and the deacons. The overseer elder pastor serves by leading. The deacons lead by serving. The elders lead the spiritual and cast the spiritual vision for the church. And the deacons bring a spiritual vision to the physical and material needs of the church. Both offices are necessary for a church to function well. Now, why does he address the overseers and deacons in this letter when he doesn't anywhere else? Maybe there were issues among the officers. Maybe there were issues among the pastors and the deacons. And he was reminding them, look, you've been... Entrusted with this authority, the very authority of Christ. But you need to keep in mind with this authority that Jesus has delegated to you, 
You are a slave to him. You can't go rogue. This isn't your church, overseer. This isn't your church, deacon. This is Christ's church. You're just a servant of Christ. Maybe that's one of the reasons there were issues among the leadership. Or maybe it was to remind the church that their leaders were sanctioned by God. But the central point, the apostle Paul addressed them as a fellowship of Jesus Christ and not merely as isolated individuals unaffiliated with the spiritual leadership of the church. There's an assumption that the saints who are in Christ are also under the leadership of the pastors and deacons. That's just the assumption. Uh, The New Testament knows nothing of a churchless Christian. In Spanish Wales, where Heather and I were last week, we spoke at a church where God is doing a great thing. But here's, here's the unique thing about this church. There's three churches on this island. There, there's a, a golf path that, that runs the perimeter of the island, grips the ocean, beautiful golf path. It's a four-mile island. There's about 1,500 people on this island. Most of them are lobster fishermen. There's three churches. There's three churches on the island. The Gospel Chapel, which is a Pentecostal church. The Methodist church, which is a liberal church. And then the People's Church, where we shared. Which is a church that is being renewed and is seeing a reformation take place. But here's the unique thing about all three churches. For decades... None of these churches had pastors. None of the churches on this island, three, had pastors for decades. As far as anybody remembers, nobody even knows when they had pastors. What did they do? They flew speakers in to speak one or two weeks. Then they would fly new speakers in to speak one or two weeks. And these churches have done that for decades. The people's church, though, about 10 years ago decided, let's go New Testament. That's a novel thought. And they got elders. And all hell is broken loose. What do you think happens when a church is not used to spiritual leadership? It exposes the idols of self-autonomy. Since the fall, we hate authority. If you doubt that, just have children. Right? And we're suspicious of leadership. We are. It's happening there. It's it's universal. But it's worse there. When a leader leads, he's wanting control. Oh, what? No, we're wanting to lead. But that's what's happening. And it is causing chaos on the island. I think that's very well could be happening here in Philippians. Because he talks about this questioning and these divisions. And again, he's addressing the fact that these overseers and deacons have been placed there by God. He's reminding the overseers and deacons, you do not have autonomy to go rogue. But he's reminding the church, you are responsible to follow your leaders. That brings us to the final point of this passage. We've seen something of what it means to be a servant a slave of Jesus Christ, and what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus. 
Then in verse 2, we see grace and peace from Christ Jesus. Read in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the pattern. We need to be Trinitarian. We need to be Trinitarian in our teaching, our preaching, our praying, and our singing. Here's the pattern. Grace comes from the Father in the Son by the Spirit. Every gift, whether it's a common grace gift or a saving grace gift, every gift comes from the Father in the Son by the Spirit. And it's no different here, though the Spirit is not named. Grace is God's love to the undeserving. If you deserved it, you didn't get grace, you got a paycheck. He gave you what you earned. But the fact is, we all are undeserving. We're all broken. We're all in Adam. Maybe you expressed your brokenness more overtly than others, but we're all broken and cannot get up, cannot help ourselves. And grace is God's love to the broken, revealed in the person, the work of Jesus Christ, the mediator of that grace. Every grace is mediated by the Son of God. There is no unmediated grace. That's why Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He's the only mediator. And at the beginning of this letter, very beginning, Paul has in mind that this letter will be a channel of Christ's grace to the reader. You ever thought about the Bible being a channel of God's grace? Yes, it's mediated through the Son by the Spirit, But the Bible is a channel by which that grace comes to us. Grace is not only the divine act of him saving us, but it's also his act of sustaining us. Since you've become a Christian, have you felt the need for God to sustain you? I hope you have. That's what he does by his grace. And peace is the result. That is the New Testament word for shalom. I love that word. You know what shalom is? It's the way God made things, intended things to be. And this peace we we experience by this grace is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. Where every foe has been vanquished and brought underneath the feet of Jesus. Including sin and sickness and sorrow. That peace is a foretaste of that. And so here we have the all-sufficient grace of Christian living and the abundance of divine peace for our troubled souls. And the book of Philippians is going to be a means, a channel for that. I hope you stick with us through this series. So let's close this out. Paul introduces his letter by mentioning one name three times. What's that name? Christ Jesus. And this is going to foreshadow how Paul is going to exalt this Christ as the only theme worth preaching. As the only master worth honoring. And the only cause worth giving our life to. And even dying for. And to each mention of Jesus' name, Paul assigns a distinctive phrase. Servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. Saints in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.
And as servants, slaves, as saints of Jesus Christ, one of the central means to experience this grace is the table. 